Life is full of crucial realizations, lessons, and failures that are, for the most part, mutual experiences that we all take under our belts at one point or another. A first crush in the schoolyard, a first haphazard romance, or first job, or the epiphany that, although lost love can be heartbreaking, we can find it again in other people. And then, there is this moment which, I'm not even certain, hits everyone. It's that moment when we think to ourselves, my god, one day, I too, am going to die. It could have been brought on by a cherished household pet that suddenly departed from our lives, or a family member, perhaps an acquaintance, a friendly face that we'll never see again. And we think to ourselves how unbelievable it is that they've just vanished from our day-to-day -day lives, despite being alive in our thoughts. At some point or another, the gravity of that realization comes full circle, and we realize that one day, you, I, we, will be that familiar face that disappears. That loved one which gave so much, brought so much before departing from this world. Mortality is the elephant in the room that never leaves. So go out and live a life that will be difficult to forget because in the end, we either make ghosts of ourselves or memories. Welcome to the third installment of the White City Ripper. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Everything was going swimmingly for the serial killer H. H. Holmes, as the train bearing him to Michigan chugged along its iron road. The steam locomotive's steady heartbeat could be felt throughout its cabins, the occupants inside at the behest of a steel beast coughing up black smoke in thick enough gouts to temporarily cloud the sky. Some of the passengers had fallen asleep. They were nearing Grand Rapids, and several hours had passed already. Dusk had painted the interior of the cabin in crimson light from the smoldering horizon. But Holmes was wide awake. Just then, he'd read the same sentence on a newspaper six, then seven times. His gaze fluttered from the paper to a spectacle which made his heart beat faster than the train's engine. A group of trainmen had gathered around a trunk in the baggage section, which occupied the forward part of the smoker. His fear was forming in reality before him. Even with the ice, the corpse in his trunk was beginning to make its presence known to nearby passengers and attendants, the only way the corpses know how. Their smell. Holmes couldn't help himself. He eked out of his seat. He had to be sure. Of course, he knew before it was confirmed, but even for someone of his intellect, the curiosity was gnawing. But it was the sight of the trainmen, clustered around his trunk, which caused his mind to go numb. He sat back down tense, but deflated. The men were talking around the trunk in hushed voices. What little Holmes could glean of their conversation just from observing, it was obvious they had suspected something was amiss with it. Holmes rubbed his eyes and folded his hands over the newspaper, his vision no longer capable of focusing on a single sentence. With a nervous hand, he straightened his necktie. He knew that this meant he had to alter his plans, but surrender was entirely out of the question. Though greed would be a likely culprit for his reasoning, knowing Holmes, it was his arrogance, his competitiveness, 
his inability to back down from a challenge which allowed him the boldness not to abandon the project then and there. Holmes decided not to go north directly. When the train reached Grand Rapids, he prepared himself to claim his trunk from the baggage room as soon as it had been placed there. When he had been boarding the smoker, it was a point of amusement to watch the attendants unknowingly aid in the transportation of a stolen corpse. Now, every moment was saturated with a feverish excitement which bordered on agony. As Holmes made his way to the baggage room, he noticed a stranger looking at him in a manner that only made his head burn hotter. As soon as this man's existence had been telegraphed in Holmes's head, he busied himself with ordering coffee at a nearby stand, sitting somewhere where he could observe the stranger without being suspected. There was no doubt in his mind. Surely the man worked for some authority. Holmes suspected the Secret Service. What was certain was that the killer and his cargo had just been spotted. Realizing this, Holmes left the train and his trunk, stepping into a nearby telegram office. There, he wired a hotel in the area. The message he left read as follows. Holmes, look after my trunk, which left Chicago this morning. Signed, Harvey. The initial H would be the same as the one on his trunk, suitable for either Holmes or Harvey. When he arrived at the hotel, he showed the clerk his telegram, who arranged for rooms for one man, named Holmes, and the fictitious friend that he'd conjured in the telegram. To avoid suspicion, Holmes sent a porter to retrieve his trunk from the baggage room. When it arrived, Holmes was reminded of the reason why his trunk had been discovered. The odor was foul enough to turn his stomach. Hadn't he years of medical education under his belt, he might have vomited on the spot. Unfortunate for Holmes, this also meant that anybody familiar with death knew that its scent was unmistakable. And not just with animal or roadkill, but the scent of human death. Secret Service men would know just as well as any mortician worth their salt when they were sharing the room with not just some foul-smelling cargo, but with the stomach-gnawing pungency of human decomposition. Behind the locked door of his hotel room, Holmes flung open the trunk, emitting a disdainful ugh as he observed what the hours on the smoker had made of his doppelganger. Which, I'll remind you, was worth around $570,000 by today's standards. By now, Holmes knew that whoever had been watching him was soon to impose upon his location. It was not a matter of if, but when. There was no time for second-guessing. Holmes left the hotel. He knew by then that the hotel and its lobby was more than likely being watched. During his outing, Holmes procured a used trunk, which would suit his purpose as well, ordering for its lock to be changed. While this was being done, he visited plumbing shops and bought a considerable quantity of old lead pipe, which he placed in his new trunk. After this, the now-laden trunk was sent to his room, the heavy weight of it lending the appearance of being filled with Holmes's possessions. There was, of course, another problem. During Holmes's several trips to the trunk store, he noticed the same man who had been watching him at the Grand Rapids station. He wasn't just being watched, he was being followed. But that wasn't the only challenge looming in his mind. The day had been warm, and the night promised to be sultry, it would be only a short time until the entire floor of Holmes's hotel room would be permeated with the odor of his friend in the trunk. Going out one more time, the solution was in attaining a waterproof hunting bag. Using this, he carried a substantial amount of ice to his hotel room, which he then placed in the bathtub. All this time, the air in the room had been becoming more and more stifling, so much so that he was all but forced to open a window. When doing this, Holmes realized that it had grown quite dark, and the day was nearly gone. 
Looking out at the sable sky with dirty clouds made silver by the moonlight, he thought on just how tangled his plans had become. Feeling burdened by this, Holmes left the room to take a break and have dinner. But even there, he failed to find respite, feeling the eyes of the officer on him. Sure enough, in the reflection of the mirror at the bar, Holmes could see the man seated at a table behind him, his plates finished, and his gaze frequently wandering onto Holmes's back. With the man's gaze pressing down on him, Holmes was unable to finish the rest of his food and hastily returned to his room. What was left, of course, was moving the corpse. With the tub repaired, Holmes steeled himself and opened up the trunk. The face that met his above the tangle of doubled joints was drawn, colored and hideous, with an unmoving gaze. And yet, thankfully, his face still somewhat resembled the outlines of Holmes's. With a little longer rumination, Holmes reminded himself that what he was actually staring at was at least $570,000. What he was looking at wasn't just a maturing corpse, but a maturing investment soon to be sprung into a massive profit. Hastened by the reminder, and the sight of its rapid decay, he returned to work with a renewed vigor. The body, stiff, rubbery in his arms, seemed a stubborn object. Though it was a human, it had lost all human qualities. Though it resembled a man, it felt wholly empty and devoid of all the things which it means to be a man. Once it had been set in the tub, Holmes was brought to a state of solemn reflection one more time. It's here that Holmes breaks away from his well-to-do manner of speaking, giving his readers a poetic surprise. He wrote, There in the twinkling light of a solitary gas lamp lay all that was mortal of I knew not whom. I claimed him as my own, and as I studied the now rigid form, strange questions arose and floated across my mind. Who was he? What had he been? Was he a father? A lover? Was his absence from home noted? Was he cared for? Such thoughts troubled me but little before, and yet, as he lay there on his frozen bed, I, seemingly fascinated by the awful solemnity of death, did not seem able to tear myself away. Holmes reached out, no longer in repulsion, to hold the arm of the man beside him as if to try and feel that soulful presence which was missing from his body, feeling at once both the loneliest and strangest creature alive. The perplexities of facing mortality had never weighed heavier on Holmes as they did now, yet it brought no clarity to his thoughts regarding past schemes, victims, and even future endeavors which had been dimly plotted. The fluttering light from the gas lamp cast both Holmes and the corpse's silhouette against the faded wallpaper of the hotel bathroom. The flimsy shadow of their heads stacked like dark mirrors of each other. In the roaring silence of this deathly contemplation, a door slowly opened. Before Holmes could react, he was given the opportunity to look straight into the eyes of the stranger which had been watching him all day. Only now it was over the glittering barrel of a pistol. Though not a word was uttered between them, both of them instinctively turned towards the object which had caused all the havoc. "'Consider yourself under arrest, sir,' said the officer. "'I am at your service,' Holmes replied. He knew it would be useless to tempt conclusions with him in such a small room. While the officer was preparing iron handcuffs from his pocket, Holmes set himself upon considering a means to stall the situation. 
By the time the officer had guided Holmes into the next room, his pistol leveled at him with one hand, he was ready. By the merry little twinkle in his eye, I can see his character as though it lay printed before me on an open page. It's a part of my game, and I intend to play my hand as well as I know how. He seems to hold a good one, too, but as I have the greatest ace, money, I know that it's worth the while to play it as best as I can. Despite the confidence in Holmes's thoughts, he found his sense of desperation rising when, in the next room, he was met with the pleasant surprise of an associate to the officer with the pistol. The associate, much smaller than the man with the pistol, gave Holmes a wink. John, go to the station house and wait until I send for you, but do not say anything until you get word, his captor said to the other. Once John had left, the officer with the pistol turned to Holmes. It looks very much like the rope for you, he said. All the while, Holmes had been drawing on the raw, very real presence of fear to animate the look of confused innocence on his expression. My dear sir, he began, you will let me explain, I hope. Uh, this man was my brother. He has just died of a malignant and very contagious disease. He had been sent to a medical college for dissection, and when I learned of it, I determined to save his body from the physician's knife. Come, look again, and see if you cannot discern a family resemblance. As Holmes was talking, the man drew back, and at his invitation to gaze at the corpse again, turned in ashen color. Holmes seized upon the opportunity, snatching the pistol from the officer's hand while he was distracted, and discharged a shot. The room exploded with the noise, at once shattering the imbalance of power between the two men, and instead reforming it in Holmes's favor. Holmes barked for the man to get to the window he'd opened earlier, ordering that he would fling himself from it to save his life if it was any use to him. The officer lost no time, and disappeared over the ledge of the porch. For good measure, Holmes fired another shot. It was at this time that staff and other tenants of the hotel came rushing to his room. Quite literally holding the smoking gun, Holmes did the only thing he could do to seal the impression of his innocence. He pointed out the window, shouting, There! See? There he goes! With this moment of their attention drawn to the window, Holmes quickly shut the bathroom door, resisting the urge to breathe a sigh of relief while the crowd craned their necks, just in time to see the detective disappearing out of sight. The matter of dispelling the last of anyone's suspicions was simple. All that was necessary was to simply replace the word detective with thief, and investigating a corpse with, quote, attempting to burglar. The following morning, Holmes packed away the lead pipe into his trunk the one which still emitted an unredeemable smell. When it came time to leave the hotel, a telegram from before came in handy, as Holmes explained that the trunk, which contained the lead pipe, belonged to his friend Harvey, who would be arriving later. Careful to avoid attention, Holmes boarded another smoker, with the corpse now repackaged in another trunk. Despite the smell being still a factor working against him, for now, Holmes had bought time. Betting on the fact that the detective had not seen him board this train, he would surely go back to the hotel, and upon finding Holmes's locked trunk weighed by the pipes, would await his return. As fate would have it, this would not be the last leg of Holmes's journey. He would step out of the train several times, once to confirm his suspicion of telegrams being sent out to alert police stations of his crimes, and another to purchase a carriage and carry the trunk himself for a dismal seven hours to another town, and a third time after boarding a freight train to, quote, freshen up his subject with a combination of ammonia and other chemicals obtained from a grocer. 
This he did in the privacy of a baggage room, with much wheezing and dry heaves. While Holmes was applying his personal concoction, somewhere along the freight train, one of the fish plates connecting one part to the next was rattling. It was a peaceful ride for most passengers, of quiet conversations, of monotony, of a packaged lunch being unwrapped in preparation for the long journey ahead, and then the fish plate, a bolt which secured the train's safe passage, had come loose from its connection, a simple act of negligence causing a fatal disaster. The freight train separated into two halves. Holmes felt his back hit the roof of the baggage room, struck into a daze as the train car ditched the rails and tumbled perilously across the earth. Our serial killer escaped from the train to find countless wounded and several dead sprawled across the wet grass which bordered the rail tracks. Before overcast skies and a breaking dawn, Holmes set about to use his surgical training to tend to the scores of wounded. There are many moments in this story which feel faded and beyond coincidence. Oftentimes, our prejudice of evil disallows us from seeing the graceful chances which are lent to nefarious individuals as well. Upon returning to the wreckage after the wounded had been looked after, Holmes found countless packages, cases, and trunks with their casings destroyed and contents strewn about. And yet, of the mere two or three which remained relatively and wholly undamaged, Holmes's trunk was one of them. And there, in the wan light of a disastrous dawn, did Holmes spot the sight of an oncoming train sent to attend to the catastrophe. As these crashes were somewhat common during these times, Holmes was not surprised. He did, however, feel the hairs on his spine rise up in that familiar patter of his nervous heart as he realized with an uncanny accuracy that the detective would, no doubt, be aboard that very train. Relying on his intuition, Holmes hauled it from the wreck to a nearby shed used by railroad workmen. When the oncoming train stopped, and the detective found him amongst the victims of the crash, the two looked at each other not unlike embittered friends after a long silence without redemption. Holmes, with no place to run, and the detective with no backup, the two approached each other calmly and moved their discourse to the shed. It was here that Holmes and the detective reached an agreement. The sum must have been large enough, as it had convinced the detective who had just chased him to hell and back to forfeit all remaining efforts. It was a dark and dreary day when Holmes finally did arrive in the wild wildernesses of northern Michigan. There, he established himself in a hut near a small town, building up a false reputation as a lumber operator, a hewer of trees, a stripper of bark. The fellow loggers in the town seemed honest enough, and found no reason to distrust the stranger who decided to dedicate his talents to a new location. Tragically enough, a week or so later, what was purported to be Holmes's dead body was found pinioned to the earth by a fallen tree. Though the state of decomposition seemed strange to the locals, some suggested that the extraordinary wounds which had been incurred from the fallen tree had hastened the rot, and let nature get to his insides quicker. 
but such accidents were not uncommon. In fact, the authorities were not even called to the scene as the townspeople found no reason to suspect foul play. After all, who would engineer a murder in such a way? To position a body precisely at the location where a tree is determined to fall seems outlandish, unthinkable, even sadistic. Surely, in those parts, the locals knew there was not a man in their mists capable of it. The loggers who had briefly known the stranger proved useful, however, when it came to the act of untangling the poor fellow from his fallen coffin. And once the mortuary workers had hauled the body and taken it to their facilities, it inevitably came time to fill out the necessary paperwork. Luckily, the man's life had been insured for a staggering $570,000. For once they had begun the morbid task of searching through the man's pockets, they found a bit of money. And alongside it, identification papers, establishing, beyond a shade of doubt, that this corpse did indeed belong to H.H. H. Holmes. Hello and thank you for listening. But before we finish wrapping up this victim and sending it off to the podcast's annex, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of those who support the show. If you don't know already, you can go to patreon.com forward slash mania to support me and the podcast, and there you'll find subscriber-only exclusives. Patrons are people who keep the show thriving in a very direct way, and without them, the show simply is not possible. But this week, we also have an exciting new sponsor. As some of you may know, the only thing I like more than morbid stories is coffee. I have a feeling that some of you do, too. 421 Coffee ethically sources all of their beans. Coffee can be a nasty business, with companies who lie about their products being fair trade. Meanwhile, the farmers, in reality, suffer at the hands of cheap prices. 421 bravely sells their product at a slightly higher margin to pay their farmers a fair price, delivering an incredible product that is both delicious and morally acceptable, which these days is pretty rare. So if you'd like to support the show and get yourself a bag of suffering free beans, go to bit.ly forward slash 421 coffee. That is bit.ly forward slash 421 coffee. And don't forget to type in my last name, Grim, at checkout to receive 10% off your order to take a little suffering out of your own. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if supporting Mania directly isn't your thing, sharing the episodes, telling your friends, and talking to your family, spreading it around your death cults, whatever you do, it's all fantastic. So thank you very much for enjoying the show. This was our third installment in the White City Ripper series. As with the other episodes concerning Mr. Holmes, I plead my innocence in fabricating any crucial details concerning the people, locations, and times. What scenes, drama, or depictions which fill the awkward silence of history are taken with little liberty, and would do little to affect the truth of Holmes's own account. For this episode's arrangement, I actually found myself cutting down on what I felt were unnecessary scenes, though they were mentioned briefly. The passage of time in which Holmes drove a carriage for seven hours was focused on more heavily in his autobiography. 
likely owing to the fact that this particular memory is one of the most potent ones, I'm sure. I've smelled my fair share of decomposed corpses, but thinking about being subjected to that scent for longer than one hour, let alone seven, is uh, excruciating. In extreme cases, such as the corpse which Holmes was carrying, the smell is not something you can, you know, get used to in any short or long span of time. In fact, uh, these odors can be so heinous that uh, I'll find myself smelling them long after I've been removed from their origin. It could be even days later, as the memory itself is strong enough to produce a sort of phantom smell. But enough about smells. In fact, I think that's a fine place to <laughs> wrap up this episode neatly. So, once more, I'll thank you sincerely from the bottom of my dark heart for enjoying Mania. I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time.